They're a minority culture living in a culture that is not 100% congruent to theirs. And there is an exhaustion that comes with that identity. They cannot simply trust or go along with the narratives that the overarching culture hands them, but they need to at all times be constantly making decisions and assessing this in the light of who Jesus is and who Jesus has called them to be. And as such, Peter is writing to them because they're facing the pressures of that identity, both external, harder pressures um, of light persecution so far, but will eventually pick up into a systematic persecution, but also just the regular, everyday pressures sorry, that come from not being part of that majority culture. Pressures to conform, pressures to just take it easy for a second and not follow the exhausting path. So Peter writes to them. He goes through a long introduction talking about this salvation they've been brought into, the inheritance they have, and how Christ will see them through the whole thing. He talks about how this life that's been birthed in them leads to transformation, both at an individual and at a corporate level. And then tying that together, he starts to launch into what is the body of the letter of how they are to therefore live that life out in the place where they find themselves. And he ties this into two broad ideas. They're to abstain from the things which would wage war against their souls. And they're to do good among the people they find themselves, knowing that they could be reviled for it. And to give more meat to that idea, Peter goes from that general broad announcement and starts to launch into more specific applications. And that's where it starts to get more controversial. Usually the more broader you start and as you move more specific, you gain controversy. To say God is love um, is not the most controversial statement because you can really apply whatever you want to to the second half of that statement. To start to say that this is what that love looks like lived out in humanity and what God has said about that love, that's where you start to pick up controversy. Similarly, to say we need to abstain from that which would wage war against our souls. I'm going to stop saying that phrase since I can't do it, apparently. And that we are to do good, even though it's challenging, is one thing to start to walk through the various levels that um, Peter walks through starts to invite controversy. He did government, which we covered two weeks ago, and this week we're doing slavery, which usually doesn't show up in people's morning devotionals. So just to launch into the section of text we're covering today, and I'm going to take a step back and cover the end of the introduction, the broad command, what we covered two weeks ago, and then actually go into the section from today to give it some context. So this is in the second chapter of Peter, starting in verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So he establishes who they are, and then he launches into how they're supposed to live. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. And then he moves into more specifics. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, 
whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. And then we get to this week's section. Servants. And this word can be translated slaves. Slaves, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if, when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins on his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you are strained like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's not the most comfortable of texts. It's not the one I would have picked out at random to preach on a given Sunday. Slaves, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good, but also to the unjust. It's an uncomfortable passage for a few reasons. One is that it's tied to the identity of our nation. Um, Slavery's been around on this continent for a long time. It's been in the news recently, so some of you might be aware, it dates back, the first slaves arrived in what would become the U.S. in August of 1619, so 400 years ago this month. To give you context, because I know some of us don't judge lengths of time that great, but by comparison, the pilgrims, which are about as American as we can think of part of our history, arrived the next year in Plymouth. So slaves beat the pilgrims to this continent. Slavery flourishes in this new land. We come, Europeans come here, and they find a land that is plentiful in resources and needs labor. And the labor is often backbreaking. It's sugar, tobacco, and cotton. It needs a workforce. So slavery finds root here and flourishes. It stands casting a shadow over the initial years of this country. It stands as a, an uncomfortable tension, to put it lightly. Declaration of Independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's written by a man who owns hundreds of slaves. Slavery doesn't get explicitly mentioned in the Constitution, but there's a reference in the second article to a certain other people that would be counted as three-fifths for the purpose of taxation and representation. We know from historical facts that the other people are slaves. We also know this because they're held in contrast to freed people. 
It's a source of conflict from the start. Washington seems to have some sort of internal conflict. He owns slaves, but does free them in his will. Our second president, Adams, never owns a slave on a matter of principle. Our third president, the one who pinned the Declaration of Independence or wrote the majority of it, owned hundreds of them and often did terrible things with them. And that conflict continues to animate much of the political and historical aspect of the first hundred years of the country's history. The politics are shaped by it, the, the famous compromises, the way the country comes to conceive of itself largely as a slave and free. And that culminates in the Civil War, which is the bloodiest war we've ever fought. Over a million people die as a direct result of this war. By comparison, only I think it's like 30,000 more die in World War II. That's this, actually the most by count. But there's five times, as five, times, five times as many people in the U.S. at the time of the World War II. The Civil War leads to the death of one in every 50 people in the U.S. This church, when we're all here, is about 50 people. So it's about one of us. It would be nice to think that the Civil War, that we simply at that point repented of the sin of slavery and just moved on full bore with everything being fine. But about a decade later, Jim Crow laws come in to deny full participation of the African slaves and their descendants, or the freed African slaves and their descendants. They restrict where they can go, how they can vote, what they can do. And outside of that extra, those legal ramifications, other groups form. And then there's just the occasional mobs that rise up to destroy what the former descendants of slaves tried to build in this country. Things like the Rosewood Massacre or the Tulsa Race Riots dot history for the next hundred years. It isn't until the 60s that we pass laws ending the Jim Crow laws. And even if we magically pretended like all the effects of slavery and then those Jim Crow laws for another hundred years magically ended at that point, we're still faced with the fact that a quarter of the people alive today were alive when that was changed. It's that recent in our history. I fully believe we are shaped by where we're going. We're people in Christ. I'm not, my, my identity is not dictated by who I am, but it's still part of the story. And similarly, this nation continues to need to wrestle with slavery and its effects. To give you an idea of the scale of it, we're talking about 400 years of history. I'm 40 years old. I would be a slave owner for the first 25 years of my life. I would enforce Jim Crow laws until I'm 35. And we'd only be talking about the last five years that are since those laws as we've been trying to move on from there. That's within my daughter's life. So it's something that is very much tied to our identity as a nation and something that we have to grapple with on a consistent basis, and it makes passages like this uncomfortable. And that's actually a good thing. I think we have a benefit to some degree in reading this passage because we recognize this is something terrible in a way that somebody in some magical future a thousand years from slavery might read this passage. They might miss the shocking words Peter is saying to these people. That said, you know, another reason we struggle with this is the actual instruction just rubs us the wrong way. Knowing the history and knowing what slavery is, 
what we don't come to the Bible hoping to hear is, slaves, be subject to your masters. We're looking for the other letter where there's rise up and set them all free. And we don't find that letter in the Bible. Now, oftentimes preachers recognize this fact, and they try to sidestep it to some degree by talking about how Roman slavery was different than slavery of America. And there's truth to that. They point out the fact that in Roman slavery, slaves could, could aspire to professional classes. Essentially, your accountants were often slaves, and those slaves could actually own slaves. So we have a multi-layer. It's also not a race-based slavery in Roman times. These are, generally speaking, prisoners of war or people who sold themselves into slavery because of debt. And it's also something where slaves could pursue freedom, and after that freedom was obtained, there wasn't a stain of slavery on them for the rest of their lives. They were, had become freed people. That said, it's still slavery, and it's still terrible. Yes, there were professional slaves at this time, but over 50% of the slaves in this point in Roman Empire actually did jobs that were agricultural. Gladiators, over 50% of gladiators were slaves, and their slavery was to go into an arena and fight someone to the death for people's entertainment. We can't pretend like slavery was pretty okay in Roman times and still have Spartacus as a movie. And for those who don't know their movies of the 50s, Spartacus is about a slave rebellion that takes place about 150 years prior to this letter. Some slaves had enough, they rise up, they basically raise an army and eventually have to get squashed by the Romans 150 years prior to this. That's the third major slave uprising in 100 years prior to this letter. They are common enough that they actually have a group name, the Servile Wars. And Spielman's nodding his head because he loves Roman history. So we have three major slave uprisings in in, within 250 years of this letter being written. That's not pointing to this slavery being fairly benign. Because, though it, you know, sorry, but it's also not strictly race, it's not strictly race-based, but it's still grounded in a philosophy that justifies it. It's a philosophy that, just, that justifies the powerful and the able ruling over those who have been conquered and are weak. It's, it's based in the Greco-Roman philosophical world that can be epitomized by Aristotle, who views slaves as having the rights, being in the right spot, that this is a society that's properly ordered. This is how it's meant to be. And it's still human property. Even if you get to be the accountant slave, you're still human property. You're still at the whim of your master. They can still do with you as they want. They can discard you. They can abuse you. They can use you for sexual purposes as they desire. And there's little to no laws to prevent that because you, for the same reason, you'd have little to no laws to prevent what people can do with their couch. It's human property. And it's deeply ingrained to this culture. So what Peter's right into is not a nice slavery, but it is a slavery that's deeply ingrained in this culture. There's no massive abolition, abolitionist movements in Rome at this time, or really much ever. The Stoics have some principled issues about this, but they're not exactly taking up arms to knock it down. 
And it's almost hard for people of this era to even conceive of what an economic world outside of slavery would look like. You're talking about a time when between 50 to 60% of the workforce are slaves. That's how the economy is structured. It's hard to perceive what happens when 50 to 60% of your workforce works on an entirely different basis. It's hard for me to conceive of what that even means to us because I'm asking what it would be like for us to imagine a future we can't imagine. But it would be like us trying to figure out kind of like how our economy would work without fossil fuels entirely. Just none whatsoever imagine the economy. I have no idea what that would look like because it's so central to the portion. That's where slavery sits as an engine to the Roman economy at this time. And we need to be aware of that because this is not something Peter is writing into to give a positive answer for how this should function. He's not writing a letter suggesting slavery. He's not looking to these minority people in this culture saying, hey guys, I have a way you can get ahead of the competition. Slavery. He's writing into a pagan culture with a pagan slavery, explaining how to live in the midst of that culture. This is not a culture that Christianity birthed. It's a culture in which Christianity was birthed. It finds itself in this Roman culture, and Peter's writing to address that. But that also points to the third reason I think we really struggle with this, because going back to American slavery, that's not true of American slavery. Over the centuries after this letter is written, in the area of Christendom, slavery starts to wither. Never goes away entirely. I would love to pretend like Christianity became the dominant force here, and they were like, no more slavery, it's gone forever. That just doesn't happen. But it does start to wither. And it gets to the point where it's just found in small pockets of Christendom. Until we find a new world. And until we figure out a way to travel easily with large ships that can carry large amounts of cargo. And at that point, rather than speaking about a pagan institution built on pagan principles, we rebuild slavery within a Christian worldview. We rebuild it making arguments out of the Bible to try and justify it. And ultimately, it's only by God's mercy that I think that gets broken. And it was not a cheap, easy mercy. As I said, we went through a war, and we're still dealing with the ramifications of it. There's obviously a tension at play here. Trying to make arguments for here in this Bible out of how to justify slavery. That's why when they make a version of the Bible to give to the slaves, they edit out 90% of the Old Testament and half of the New Testament. You end up with a Bible that jumps from creation straight to Joseph being sold into slavery, which is just twisted, then skips the Exodus when they freed the slaves and goes directly to the Ten Commandments and then immediately jumps out of there because you can't cover the laws about slavery in the Old Testament because you run into the idea of anyone who is caught Stealing a man and selling him or is caught in the possession of that man is to be put to death. My question is, how do you have that and then have an institution that's 100% based on stealing men and selling them and then possessing them? 
And you end up with something that starts to declare that these aren't men, or at least that they're something less. And that makes it so that even when it's broken, those ideas stay with us. And that gets to something I talked about two weeks ago when we were when looking at the government. I said that this idea of being subject to the government does not push towards a quietism. We are to be subject to the government because we are ultimately subject to God who tells us to be subject to the government. And that means there are times when this being subject to God and this being subject to the government will run contrary to each other, and we can expect conflict. But what it doesn't address, what Peter doesn't address, is what would happen if Nero had come to him and said, how am I supposed to rule here? Not even in the imagination of what's going to happen at this time. We don't get the letter of how Nero is supposed to rule, but it starts to touch on what are our, where our situation. Because whereas in Peter, and where Peter's writing into, for them, the government is out there, and they are here as subjects. For us, the government is both out there, and it's also here because, ostensibly, we are people in a government where the people who are actually running things are representatives of us, and we vote on a consistent basis for what's supposed to happen here. So you can't simply take what Peter says here and blueprint it down here and be like, well, we aren't supposed to say anything because we're subject to the government. It's not a stretch to think that if Peter was writing into our situation, the letter would be addressed differently. If he was writing into 1700s America, the letter would be written out differently because you're talking to a different people in a different culture. And when you get into a, Christ a slavery that is being justified, on Christian principles with a Christian worldview, it's absolutely right to attack it and attack it immediately on, with Christian principles from a Christian worldview. But we need to recognize the context into which Peter's writing this. That's not what he's writing this into. He's writing this into a world of pagan slavery in which these people simply find themselves. They were born into this. They were likely in this state when they found Christianity. And you, so you come back to his instructions there. Again, not arguing for slavery, but arguing and telling these people how they are to live in this culture they found themselves. And he writes from the same perspective he's been writing in all this letter. He writes both to an apologetic, to encourage them for an apologetic, to encourage them to live in a way that proclaims a message out into the world, and he also writes to encourage them in how they are to live for their own benefit, to strengthen them in their walk with Christ as they follow him. On the apologetic side, he is fairly consistent. He gives instructions here to slaves that are very similar to the instructions he gave and how to deal with the government as a whole. There's nothing you could read in this section that couldn't also have been read about the government. Citizens, be subject to Nero with all respect, not only when he's good and gentle, but also when he's unjust. That's roughly what he called them to do in the, with the government as well. It was to be subject to this government, knowing that they could run into opposition with it. And there's an admirable consistency there. Doesn't make everything great, but you gotta admire the consistency. Because oftentimes, I mean, you have a consistency. It's basically, and it flows this entire section. He goes, it's everyone be subject. 
People be subject in the government, slaves be subject, wives, everyone be subject. You're all going to suffer, probably going to suffer under the government, going to suffer as slaves, wives are probably going to suffer, you're all probably going to suffer. First Peter. <laughs> Roughly it. <laughs> but the consistency here that's good is that oftentimes Christians come to scriptures in a way that look for something that is challenging out there and comforting here. I don't think the normal model in American Christianity is to go for daily devotions looking to be broken down and rebuilt. It's usually for warm affirmation. There's a Christian radio station. I think it's the only Christian radio station in this area. Their tagline is positive, period, encouraging, period. And that myopic focus is one of the main struggles American Christianity is going to need to overcome if we're going to maintain anything close to the biblical faith for the next century. But Peter, and oftentimes leaders, look to subject themselves to something differently from what they actually call people to be subject to. But Peter doesn't do that either. He's calling these people and telling them to be subject to an unjust master, just as he himself will be subject to an unjust master in Nero to the point of death. So there's a consistency in his answer. But what does he say to them directly in terms of an encouragement? And I think he says things that offers them both hope and dignity in the midst of where they find themselves. First, and he does some novel things here. I don't think it's a strange, again, I wish Christianity had come to greater power and slavery had disappeared, but we do see it fade slowly. And I don't think it's by chance. I think there's things even in this letter that undermine some of the undergirding structures of slavery. Because one thing Peter does here is he, direct, he addresses the slaves directly. This model he's pulled here, um, this structure of going through various orderings of society, is not something that Peter or Paul, who uses the same sort of structuring, invented. This is called a household coat. Household code. This society views the household as the fundamental building block of society. It's the most important thing. It's what everything is built. It's just a bunch of little families put together. So the question of how you properly order one is one that's crucial to this society. And you have these things called household codes to tell you how to do them. Generally speaking, they're addressed to the people who are in power. Masters, this is how you order your slaves. Husbands, this is how you order your wives. Peter addresses the slaves, and he addresses them directly, which again undermines one of the, gen the general principles that's driving slavery forward here, because the idea would be that slaves are somebody who needs to be controlled. They're somebody who is very likely morally weak to wicked, shouldn't have their own volition, and it's a better ordered society if they're told what to do. What Peter says is essentially the master is either just or unjust, but I am trusting in you, slave. I am trusting in you and your volition to make the right choice and do the right thing. So he's turned that on its head right there. 
He's looking at them and seeing them as people who can properly order themselves and calling them to do so as brothers. He also recognizes the difficulty of their situation. Because I think we can look at the consistency of Peter's message and be a little overly comforted by it. Because you have to admit, even though everybody's called to be subject, the slaves kind of seem like they get the short end of the stick here. It's one thing to be subject to the government. It's another thing to be subject to the guy living in your house who can beat you. But I think Peter recognizes that. He recognizes where they are, and he does something I think that's amazing in this text because of that. He places this portion of text in the middle of his instructions to the slave. Remember, this is something that is said directly to the slaves. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore his sins in his body on the tree, that is, on the cross, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This section about Christ's suffering is crucial to this entire body of this letter. This idea right here of what Peter's pushing for in this section is what animates and gives strength to everybody who is hearing this letter. Those who are subject to the government need to hear what's here. The wives and the husbands need to hear this section. But Peter addresses it to the slaves. He doesn't need to do this. This is something that's crucial. So there's ways of ordering this section that make more sense. If this is the crucial element about what the example of Jesus is, it would make more sense in my mind to order the letter by going, okay, this is who you are. You need to abstain from evil, do what is good, look to Christ your example, and now let me apply it to the government, slaves, marriage, etc. That's a nice structured ordering. Or he could have taken the normal road and tied it to the most powerful people in this situation, the husbands at the end. This is who you are. You've been called to abstain from evil, to do good even though you're reviled for it. Let's talk about government, slaves, marriage, husbands, care for your wives. Be the example and follow the example of Christ. Everyone look to these people who are the most important people in this society you live in and be like them. But that's not where Peter puts it. He takes this thing that everyone needs over here and addresses it to the slaves such that the people who are doing the rest of this letter need to almost overhear what's said to the slaves if they are to live out the rest of this correctly. But it's beyond that. It's not simply that he says it there to give them honor. Because it's one thing to put together a letter and talk to the people who are in the worst situation and recognize they're in the worst situation by kind of throwing them a bone and putting the important information in their part. Which, I mean, it's something. But he does something more than that. He doesn't simply place it there so that they can be the ones who hear it with everybody else kind of overhearing it to them. He actually holds them up as the people in which this example is most clearly seen today to the people who are reading this. 
He holds them up as something of an emblematic example of what Christ actually is suffering here. He's saying that as Christ suffered, so too unjustly, as Christ paid this cost, so too slaves be subject to your masters, being willing to suffer unjustly, and this is a gracious thing. Because what often happens is people who are in power, the people in this letter who are only going to hear the portion that speaks to the government, the people who are in a good position, the people who have built something up and are in a strong position, they hear this letter, they hear Peter say, be subject to the government, and they agree with this. They agree that's a good thing, and then they draw the line at which that ends. I will be subject to the government, but going beyond that is too much. That's starting to cost the dignity that God has given me. Going beyond that line starts to cost me the things I have built in this age. So Peter's placed this portion of the letter with the slaves. Because for a landowner and a person in power to go, no, my dignity and what I have won't let me go past this, Peter can point to the slave and say, this is the person who's doing it too. Your line's not there. It's 100 yards down further. So Peter elevates the slaves in the midst of this discourse, addressing them directly, giving them a portion of the letter that is needed by each of the parties, by the entire church, in order to live out this calling correctly, and by showing that in the way they adhere to this, all others should follow that sort of suit. So he gives a dignity to them, but he also gives a hope. I noted that it's impressive that Peter's consistency, that Peter is willing to subject himself to the same things he is calling people to do. But that's not the only consistency here. Because in connecting Jesus to the slaves, Peter is pointing to an even greater consistency in this message. Because Jesus, speaking through the Spirit, through Peter, to this church, to these slaves, is saying, look, you have been given a dignity. You have a divine dignity as part of your calling in in Christ. What I'm asking you is not to take up arms because of that, but for my sake and the sake of this mission to be subject, to abstain from evil, to do good even though you might be punished for it. Because I did the same. To the degree that we have received dignity, surely God had more, has more. And he set aside the right and the honor that comes with that when he was incarnated. He came and subjected himself to death, to sin, to human government in a way that he didn't need to. We we read in here, he committed no, no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. He abstained from evil. He does good on this mission. He has come to save. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. The reason this is such a key section to the rest of all that's being called here is not because simply that Jesus is a nice example in an abstract sense, but that Jesus did the exact thing that Peter is calling these people to do. 
He came full of a dignity that's been, that is his as part of being God. But he didn't hold on to that dignity as something that didn't, that was something that he held on to as more important than this mission he's been placed on, but he allowed himself to be subject. He did good, he did not sin, and he suffered to the point of death. So when Jesus calls us to do this, when he calls the slaves to do this, he is not calling them simply to do this for him. He's calling them to do something that he himself has done. And we need to see this because we need to see that Jesus does more than simply walk alongside us. We've been reading through Psalm 23, and Terry has switched the Lord to Jesus. And there's something really right about that. There's something right in our theology, in our Christology of who we believe Jesus to be, that he is God, so we can put him in there. And it makes it intimate. We know that this person, Jesus, is the one who is with us and who walks through the valley of the shadow of death. But... We need to also read it as it's written because we need to not only see this as a prayer to Jesus, we need to also see this as how it is a prayer from Jesus. This is not some weird theological leap I'm making. The gospel writers quote Jesus as praying Psalm 25 from the cross. Jesus was a man. He was holy God and holy man. And as a holy man, and I mean this with a W, as fully man, He was a Jewish man, and the Psalms are his scriptures, so he would have known them and prayed them on a consistent basis. So we can say that Jesus is our shepherd, but we also need to say that Jesus can say that prayer to his Father as my shepherd. And in that, we see that God and Jesus not only promises to walk through these valleys with us, that he not only promises to walk through the valley of the shadow of death with us, but that he himself has already walked through it. So he doesn't simply come alongside us and say, I'm with you. But he says, I've been there. Are you in a hard valley that you're struggling to walk through? I've walked that path. Do you Feel the shadows of massive peaks that you can't see beyond, that you know you have to walk through. I've stood there too. Has the sun been blotted out and you feel a cool on your neck? I know those clouds. Have no fear. I've walked this path. I've gone through to the other side. I know what's there, and I'll see you through as well. There's a hope and a dignity given to these slaves. They've been elevated as brothers. They've been addressed directly. They've been given central information to this letter. They've been held up as something that other people need to see, and they need to see that they don't get to draw a line shorter in their sufferings, shorter in the call of this gospel. They don't get to restrict this gospel from parts of their lives because slaves are called to it as well. 
And they've also been given a hope. Because the path they've been asked to walk, the hardship they've been asked to walk, Jesus walked it too. So to the degree that they can hear that, how much more can we? How much more can the other people in this letter? Because that act of doing good, that submission, this mission that God was placed on, that God has placed us on, this mission for which Jesus came and set aside that which was rightfully his to be subject to the point of death, by this mission we have been saved. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And in that letter, Paul is, Peter, sorry, Peter is writing to all the people present there. Slave and free, male and female. They've all, because of this act, been set free as part of one act. There's no segregation in the act of salvation. The act that saved them saves us. So we see in a challenging section of Scripture, a section of Scripture I wouldn't have chosen, we see the rich love of Christ. We see the dignity he was willing to set aside. We see what it is to graciously suffer something unjustly for the mission of God. We hear a calling that challenges us. Because when Jesus suffered, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. We need to remember that our calling as we look to follow this we are to be faithful to what he has asked us to do and leave the outcomes to him. There's not a pragmatism here that says, this time if I suffer unjustly, they'll probably convert. So I'll do it. We simply do what we're called to do, trusting the outcome out there and also the outcome of our own lives to Jesus, knowing the distance he was willing to go to save us. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for what you've given us. I thank you for the love you've shown us. I ask, Father, that you would that you would make that more tangible in our hearts. that we would know you're near us, that we would know that you walk with us, that we would see these stories and be impressed by their reality. Know that wherever we are and whatever we're walking through, that we would know that you walk alongside us, knowing that you have walked and know You've experienced firsthand the weakness and the frailty of human life. Lord, let us entrust ourselves fully to you. 
Lord, let us entrust ourselves fully to you that we might live fully for you. Being shaped by your word, led by your spirit, joined to one another in brotherhood. Thank you, Father.